The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from across Ukraine. Hear from our foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, who's been on the ground looking at the torture chambers discovered in liberated Kherson. And we hear about the challenges faced by volunteers supplying Ukrainian troops fighting on the front line. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 21st of November, day 271. And today... I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and our foreign correspondent, Colin Freeman. Dom, can I start with you? Uh, what's the latest from what you're looking at? Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Happy Air Assault Forces Day to all our Ukrainian colleagues. Should have warned the berry. Um, so a lot of fighting over the weekend, continuing into this morning. So uh, firstly, in the east, so around the Donbass, uh, Russian forces bombarding artillery mainly artillery, missile as well, into Ukrainian positions. Um, President Zelensky said last night that uh, there'd been about 400 strikes across the area. Um, a bit further to the south, around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, there have been a number of explosions there. The um, IAEA, so the International Atomic Energy Agency, reported that and said, well, sorry, so Russian media also have confirmed that. They've said that, that well, they said there were 15 shells fired by by Ukraine at the plant, landed near a dry nuclear waste storage facility and also a building that houses uh, fresh nuclear fuel. Um, this is according to TASS. They're saying no signs of a, of a nuclear leak. Um, so that's that's the, the Russian version. Um, the IAEA uh, are saying, well, they're not apportioning blame for the for the for the attacks, but the Director General Rafael Grossi has said the explosions are completely unacceptable, and those responsible quote playing with fire, which I think is you know, is a, an understatement, and uh, similar to what we've heard from him in recent uh, in recent weeks. And just that sort of comes and goes as the political temperature ebbs. Um, it's it's another it's yet another another uh, thing that Russia can do to sort of press the buttons. Obviously, it's, it's extremely dangerous. Um, anything near that nuclear power plant, and then this morning uh, in Hezon, there's been a number of uh, multiple launch rocket strikes. So MLRS or GMLRS, the guided MLRS uh, version. Although we don't think Russia are firing many guided munitions at the moment. It's mainly either dumb bombs or just the standard MLRS. Um, there are reports that the Ukrainian government are looking to evacuate civilians out of the city now. I mean, it's been they've held it, they've held it for a number of days. However, it's only the river, which is a very formidable obstacle, obviously, but it's only only the river, so not great distance that separates Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian civilians in the city from Russian troops, and hence, you know, they are still extremely vulnerable to this indirect fire. Um, so it's likely that uh, that Ukraine will look to get their get their citizens out. Um, separately this morning, Ukraine's office of the general prosecutor said that they had identified four torture sites, what they're calling you know, sites that have, that have been used for um, torture in Hezon, and uh, connected, although slightly separate, the Spanish Prime Minister this morning has told NATO Parliamentary Committee meeting in Madrid that Spanish police are going to be deploying to Ukraine to help investigate these alleged war crimes. I've got a little note uh, just to talk about weapon promises and uh, the visit of Rishi Sunak, Britain's Prime Minister, to Kiev over the weekend. But I'll just take a little pause there. Thanks very much, Dom. Uh, well, Francis, why don't you start off by talking a little bit about Sunak's visit and then Dom can add his thoughts at the end of that. Good afternoon, everyone. So Rishi Sunak, of course, made a surprise visit to Ukraine on Saturday to meet with Vladimir Zelensky. He arrived in a rather snowy Kiev, saying that he was humbled to be in the country for his first face-to-face meeting with the Ukrainian president. Uh, a video was released by Downing Street that showed the two leaders sharing a warm embrace outside the presidential palace before heading inside to meet senior Ukrainian officials and to have a one-on-one. And as part of this meeting, Mr. Sunak announced that there would be further 
50 million pounds in support package of defense aid comprising around 125 anti-aircraft guns and technology to help Ukraine counter Russia's Iranian supplied drones. So offering things like radar, anti-drone technology, etc. And there was also lots of warm words about the importance of, of democracy and what Ukraine is fighting for. He said, and I'll quote directly, it was deeply humbling to be in the country and that he was proud of how the UK had backed Ukraine since the beginning of the war. I'm here today to say the UK and our allies will continue to stand with Ukraine as it fights to end this barbarous war and to deliver a just peace. While Ukraine's armed forces succeed in pushing back Russian forces on the ground, civilians are being brutally bombarded from the air. We are today providing new air defence, including anti-aircraft guns, radar and anti-drone equipment, and stepping up humanitarian support for the cold, hard winter ahead. And then uh, President Zelensky tweeted his thanks to Mr Sunak, saying, with friends like you by our sides, we are confident in our victory. Both of our nations know what it means to stand up for freedom. So just one more final word on this before turning to Dom's thoughts. I think just important to contextualise this for, for listeners who perhaps who haven't tuned into the podcast in recent weeks. There was, there was some concern over uh, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's stance on Ukraine. Some felt that his remarks outside Downing Street when he took power only a few weeks ago now were a little more vague on the matter of Ukraine than his predecessor Liz Truss. But this clearly is a statement of intent that with him as prime minister that he will be as robust on Ukraine as his immediate predecessors Liz Truss and Boris Johnson and uh, at least publicly um, um, but I think another important thing to this is this isn't necessarily out of character for Rishi Sunak as I've spoken about in the podcast previously he had written a very um, forceful letter to Ukraine when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer um, which was really repeating the, the kind of strong stance that we'd seen from Boris Johnson. So I think some of the commentary that was expecting Rishi Sunak to be, um, you know, uh, much more ambiguous on the matter of Ukraine have been silenced by what we've seen over the weekend. Thanks, Francis. Um, Dom, what would you like to add to that before turning to your other updates? And then we'll go to Colin. I would echo Francis's comments there. I thought, well, I was starting to wonder about Rishi Sunak and his and his views on on Ukraine. So uh, I was very pleased to see that he that he went out there and that um, the speech that that um, Francis just paraphrased there. I thought it was interesting that that um, Rishi Sunak said he was going to defend the principles of sovereignty. Uh, sorry, saying that you know, Kiev are defending the principles of sovereignty and democracy. So I mean, those are big, big deals, right? I mean, this is what is what it's all about. So he wasn't tying himself to any specific sort of tactical or even operational victory, as in something inside the war. I mean, he's talking big, big, big big hand stuff here, sovereignty and democracy. So it doesn't really give him any room to, to, to wriggle out of it. I'm not suggesting for one moment that he that he planned to or that he wished to or anything like that. But, you know, and it's not the first time a politician might might go and do something that he or she previously said they wouldn't do. But I thought you know, he's properly nailed his colours to the mast there, which we will continue to remind him of if he ever ever wavers from it. But this, um, so this deal, £50 million, uh, 125 anti-aircraft guns, technology for drones and so on and so forth. I mean, I was, I was racking my brains about this, trying to work out what it would be, what's in the British military uh, locker equipment locker to, to that could meet this i kind of came up with a bit of a blank it's been a while um, and we haven't had sort of anti-aircraft guns as such i'm thinking of the, the kind of things that we would use in the air defense role I mean, you wouldn't really describe them as guns so reached out to some uh, to some trusted sources uh, and uh, a white a white hall source i won't we'll go no further said that these would be old school almost flak guns um my sources words uh you know, flat gun being being fa- fairly old, thinking Second World War vintage. Um, I mean, it's not it's not that I'm fairly certain, as in it's not Second World War vintage. But I sold old school type of flat gun, surprisingly effective against Shahid One Three Six in decent numbers and with plentiful ammo. Now the thing about the Shahid One Three Six, the Iranian supplied drone, is they are they are low, slow, and quite noisy. So yeah, they've got um, we think about a fifty k warhead. So they are effective against the the, the small transformer and electrical power state uh, substations that we've seen them them used against um but, and they can obviously cause a great deal of damage they hit apartment blocks and other civilian areas but they're not um, they're not they're not massive they're not sort of ballistic missiles or anything huge um and therefore they are quite they're quite old they're quite vulnerable and they're particularly vulnerable but they are very very cheap so 
Iran has supplied, we think, about 2,500 of them. Um, there is a, a report in the Washington Post over the weekend that said Russia has reached a, an agreement with Iran to begin um, manufacturing these drones inside Russia. So they, they basically bought the bought the rights, if you like, the designs and, and what have you. So they'd be able to knock some more of these out. So they're very, very cheap. And at the moment, Ukraine have had to rely on, on fairly expensive air defence systems to, to defeat them, which is, I mean, it's not just that ain't great the bang for your buck no no pun intended but you know you need those very um those very precious air defense missiles to go after the really big things the the, the fighter jets and the ballistic missiles and the cruise missiles that are, that are coming your way so there has been a requirement now for a, for a couple of months um very vocally expressed that what ukraine need are just it's just they just need to put lead in the air so the the German Gepard, for example, is particularly good here. Very popular kit, uh, tracked vehicle, twin 35mm cannon that just shove a huge amount of metal into the air um, and can knock these things out or knock knock out low, slow-moving aircraft. So they were good against they, they were designed against sort of helicopters and that kind of thing. But they're also very, very good against against these drones. So something of that ilk is is what's been required here. And if these, like I said, I, I still don't know exactly the nature of the equipment, but if they are if they are fairly old school, but they are very, just very good at chucking rounds into the air um, and they are being supplied in decent numbers with plentiful ammo, as my source suggests, then that, that's kind of in the right direction. So I think this is, this is a good move. They'll, they'll need more because you, you, they, they are point defence, as in they, they, you, you put them next to something that's, very, um, that's critical to you. you they can't, their range if they can't go very far. They're just... You know, like a, imagine just firing a rifle into the air it's not going to travel a huge a huge distance and it's somewhat similar here they'll they'll probably be going a bit further because the muzzle velocity will be will be higher than a than a rifle but even so you're not covering a huge piece of a huge area so you need to defend a particular headquarters or a particular radar site or a particular you know have a, some num- number of these things dotted around an airfield so they're used for point defense rather than air, area defense and therefore, they will get soaked up very, very quickly in a, in a country the size of Ukraine. So this is good. Uh, more are needed um, from Britain and elsewhere. But this is exactly the kind of thing that has been that Ukraine has been crying out for in the last few weeks to um, to counter specifically the Shahid 136 drone, and especially so if Russia are now saying that they are going to be they're going to be designing and building these things um, themselves in in Russia. Thanks, Dom. Um, anything more from Dom or Francis before we go to Colin Freeman? I might, if I could just jump in on the on just since we're talking about the issue of aid. Um, I think there's been a couple of interesting stories um, that have come out of Europe this week on the matter of aid. I'll just draw attention to one before turning to Colin, which is on Italy. So Italy's government has asked its parliament to pass a new law on military and civilian supplies to Ukraine throughout 2023. It plans to send aid to Ukraine without seeking parliamentary authorization each time on the basis of a decree that expires at the end of the year. So essentially, it's an attempt to uh, renew things in a manner that means that they can continue to provide support without continually going back, back and forth to parliament. Now, why is this significant? Well, of course, Italy has been one of the question marks with regard to Ukraine. There's been concern, indeed, that um, since the election of of its new prime minister, that this was a government that was more sceptical and more uh, around the issue of Ukraine, but also slightly more uh, Russian-leaning. But that has not proven to be the case. Georgia Maloney, the new prime minister, has actually been far more robust on Ukraine than many predicted, um, despite the fact that one of her immediate predecessors, of course, um, Berlusconi, is in her government or is due to be in her government and has been much more uh, closely aligned with Putin. Indeed, he talked recently, as listeners will recall, uh, about uh, how he, he felt that Ukraine had been sort of, you know, um, the, the aggressor in the conflict and and the, all these sort of leaks, which were no doubt very embarrassing for the Italian government. So as I just draw attention to that in the context of what's going on with Britain and the issues that, that Don was just talking about there, that, that clearly um, for, for all of the issues that have been rumbling on, the concerns about um, resolve weakening over, over winter, some of these countries that were perhaps a little bit more of a question Question mark, particularly Italy, um, are um, proving still um, solid on the issue. Thanks, Francis. Let's go to Colin Freeman. Colin, you're out in Ukraine. Where have you been and who have you been speaking to? I am no longer there. I was there until Friday. Um, but ah, My mistake. Sorry. Welcome back. I was mainly, I, I, I was all over the place, actually. I was out somewhere west of Kherson before the Russians pulled out. Um, then I was up in Kiev for a bit, and then I was down in Kherson itself um, about 
uh, two days after it, uh, the Russians withdrew. And we, we've heard from uh, Joe Barnes, who is also down in Kherson. Um, what did you see when you were there in the, in the liberated city? I went there a couple of times, um, both on Ukrainian um, government-organised um, press tours, I should, uh, I should say. Um, uh, on the second occasion, I'll mention this, um, we went to a uh, what was a, actually a police station um, that was being used uh, by the Russians during the occupation to interrogate and in some cases torture Ukrainians who were suspected of either um, uh, work, uh, either pro-Ukrainian nationalist sympathies or actively colluding with um, Ukrainian military to um, tell them where Russian positions were so that they could be shelled or, or working with the pro-Ukrainian partisans who were... Um, uh, who, who were sabotaging the Russian occupation. Um, this police station is a sort of drab pre-detention centre-looking building on a street uh, whose official name, I think it was a Soviet-era name, was Electricity Workers Street, um, uh, which was rather apt, actually, because um, there were some novel electricity workers in there um, from the Russian KGB, it would seem, um, people who were trained in how to deliver electric torture um, we spoke to one guy, he a Ukrainian guy who'd spent three weeks in there right at the beginning of the war. Um, uh, he was not at all surprised that he had been arrested. He said he was on a, a list of ex-Ukrainian military uh, servicemen that the Russians had somehow got their hands on. And um, they turned up at his house and took him in for questioning. Um, and he's... He said, "What what I I now know is a sort of now has now become a somewhat familiar story after interviewing a number of these people. Where um, uh, a, 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 some sort of metal clip was attached to his ear, and then another metal um, device attached to his hands, and then electricity applied. He said it was the most exquisite sort of pain um, you can imagine." Um, there seems to be one of these one thing these these torture sessions have in common is that they seem to feature some sort of black wind up black box that doesn't require a mains electricity supply, um, which is used as some sort of generator to um, to power the the electric current that is used in these torture sessions. Um, it looks apparently rather like an old school dial up telephone. Um, and uh, you, you kind of dial this dial according to how much power you want to deliver through somebody. And I, I've read here and there, I don't know this for certain, that it's, it, it, in the in sort of KGB circles, it's known as making a telephone call to Putin. Um, so anyway, uh, that was um, uh, that was his story. He was there for about three weeks and eventually released. Other people were apparently not so lucky, and neighbours in the area apparently said that they saw several people being taken out in uh, in white shrouds um, who they presumed had been tortured to death while in there. And um, I think, I believe I'm right in saying that there's at least four of these detention centres have been found around Kherson uh, already and it's expected that there many others um, will probably uh, emerge as time goes on as, pro as Ukrainian prosecutors who are already crawling all over the area, continue their investigations. It's a, a rerun, really, in many ways, of what we've seen in places like Butcher and Irpin, with mass graves being discovered and, uh, and all the usual sort of atrocities and mistreatments that we've, we've come, unfortunately, to expect from, Ukraine, from the areas under Russian occupation. Thanks, Colin. Um, so you write in your piece that it's now being treated as one large crime scene by Ukrainian prosecutors. Could you give our listeners just a sense of what that means in practice? What, what did you see? What was the kind of activity you saw going on? When we were there, the, the, we, we were able to access a number of the, the, the cells on the lower floor of the building. Um, they were covered. They, they looked like they'd had people living in them full time. Um, you know, they were covered in litter and sort of mouldy looking blankets and various other detritus, um, like they'd been squatted or something. My sense, and I'm not sure, was that that was possibly not the cells where people were actually detained because 
my guess, having had the misfortune for this to happen to me once myself, is that um, if you had an area where you were that you were using as living quarters, you would probably keep it relatively tidy if it was you staying there. I think they were the cells where the Russians were being billeted uh, themselves um, because they, they looked like some of the areas of the trenches and other foxholes and other places that we've seen where Russian soldiers have been uh, been living, really just sort of casting out all, all their kind of detritus around them um we were not allowed to go upstairs to the uh, to the upstairs area of the building i suspect that's possibly where some of the torture was actually carried out we did not see any manacles any other bits and pieces of a, of, of torture gear lying around although i'm told that other people who accessed curse on other times have done so my my what we've been told is that all these areas are under investigation and this will all go towards expanding the already fairly fat dossier of war documented war crimes allegations against the Russian forces. And just outside of this building, what what else did you see in Kherson and and in Kiev? What was the atmosphere like in the streets? Who who did you speak to? In Kiev, I was there for a few days, not long after um, there was the latest big round of drone bombings and, um, and, and other aerial bombings. I have to say, Kiev did not feel a great different, deal different from uh, any other time I've been there, and I've been there several times this year. Um, life seemed to be ticking on very much as normal. There were air raid sirens every now and again. Nobody paid much attention. Um, and the streets of Kiev in the evenings, I was out on a Friday night, um, were, were packed with people, busier than I've ever seen it, um, all going out, not just doing it, not doing emergency shopping or anything like that, uh, but going out and, um, you know, boozing, uh, eating in restaurants and so on and so forth. So life there seems to be very much as normal. I, there, there are power cuts here and there, but in the city centre where I was staying, I did not notice uh, any of them. I think if you've got a large building with a generator, etc., um, then you, you're, you're relatively um, insulated from that kind of thing at the moment. Colin, one last thing uh, before opening the floor to Tom and Francis. You've done a bit of um, a bit of reviewing. There's a new collection of speeches by Vladimir Zelensky that's been uh, re- that's been released or being released, I should say. You've read it. Um, what stood out to you? Yes, well, th- this is what I suspect is probably the first of a rash of books being published, uh, either ahead of Christmas or uh, otherwise, largely to sort of cash in on Ukraine mania. I suppose you could say. Uh, amongst the reading public, people wanting to catch up on the, the, you know, on the conflict, all the things that they've missed, and also a bit of Zelensky mania. Uh, so this is a, a book published by Penguin, I think it was, um, 16 of his best speeches. Um, uh, they include one, an address to Parliament, an address to Congress, various other places. Um, although in the foreword, which is uh, perhaps one of the most interesting bits of the book, they, they make the point that the his perhaps his most memorable speech lasted just 30 seconds. And this was um, on the Friday night that the invasion was on Thursday morning. This was on the Friday night when it was widely rumoured that he had already fled Ukraine. And Zelensky and about three of his close advisers appeared um, on a street corner somewhere in the dark. And he spoke into his iPhone, recorded a brief selfie saying, I am still here. Um, my government is still here. Civil society is still here. Um, we are going to stay and defend Ukraine. This is going to be how it is from now on. Um, I remember that video myself quite well because I was about to try and head into Kiev from Western Ukraine at that point. And um, it was a sign that perhaps things which seemed to be going very badly at that point were perhaps not going quite that badly. They had withst- withstood the first... 36 hours of the storm and uh, as the 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 prologue of this book makes clear you know though that that is that was perhaps the most important speech of his life it convinced other ukrainians that he was not leaving and therefore they shouldn't either and that they should stay and fight um but there are some other interesting speeches in the book as well um it's very notable how he he adjusts his tone according to who he's speaking to and he he appeals to 
uh, milestone events in, in different countries, according to the audience. He's, he's done something like about 81 foreign addresses since uh, since the start of the war. He's clearly now the, the world's most in-demand speaker, way beyond Barack Obama even, I would guess. Um, uh, for example, to um, the Israeli Neset, he he you know he evokes memories of the Holocaust. He says you know well, never again was supposed to be a full stop, not a question mark. Um, to the Americans, he discusses nine eleven. He says you know that was the day that evil rained down upon you from above. That's what's happening here in uh, in Ukraine now every day, and we can't stop it. We need your help. Um, and then uh, interestingly to the Germans, he says you know, who've been who've been criticized quite a bit for their reluctance certainly early on in the conflict to uh to, to arm Ukraine and for their 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 dependence on, on on Russian gas. He says it's as if a new Berlin Wall had gone up in Europe, um a wall between freedom and slavery. And uh he 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 doesn't mince his words when it comes to the Germans. But more generally, um having ploughed through many of these books of collected speeches or certainly read many speeches um, as a foreign correspondent um, written or, or you know, written by foreign leaders over the years. This book, I would say, is pretty unusual. I managed to read all 140 pages of it without nodding off. Um, and that is unusual for speeches by any foreign leader. They are well written. They they come from the heart. They are empathetic. And they are, you know, they are, you know, certainly, I think, will probably go down in memory as being speeches that very much rose to the occasion. You can imagine, for example, perhaps not necessarily ordinary telegraph readers settling down with with, with a copy of these, but schools and colleges looking picking these over in, in years to come and seeing looking at the speech craft, looking at the way that they're, they're written and, and, and the appeals that they make. They're, 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 I, th- I think this is certainly a book that was worth, worth putting out by Penguin. I do have a question for Colin, actually, just on the back of what he was saying there about President Zelensky's speeches, which is, um, do, does it say in the book whether all of the speeches were written by Zelensky himself or whether there were a team of speechwriters who were involved in, in the writing of them? I know from my own experiences working in politics that it's quite common for, say, a, a leader or um, a member of parliament to say to their team, you know, here's the essence of what I want to say, but then they leave it up to their aides to, to, to write it. Um, I, I used to be one of them. Um, so I'm just wondering if, if it is genuinely him or if there is a team of people who are working on these no it doesn't make from what i can remember it doesn't make any mention of who writes them i whether it's him or one of one of his aides or how they are written um i i, I was i wanted to know the, the the answer to that just like you did actually so i, I did some research and from what i can tell uh, this is from a, an article in the observer some months ago um they're written by somebody called dimitro litvin who is a a 30-something ex-magazine columnist who works in Zelensky's team. Uh, and he was, I think, very briefly interviewed by the Observer, perhaps putting it too strong. He answered a couple of questions by email and confirmed that uh, he was uh, one of the people, or perhaps indeed the person who wrote most of Zelensky's speeches. He said he did the words, the ideas and emotions came from Zelensky. Hard to be certain, really, who is doing the heavy lifting there, I would say. Thanks, Colin. Dom, I know you've also got a question. Yes, thanks, David. Hi, Colin. Great to chat again. Be looking forward to uh, catching up with you when you're back here in town. Um, away from the speeches, sorry, back down, back down to the trenches, if I may, for a moment. For some time now, I've been trying to work out with the Russian withdrawal from Hairs On, who it was, basically. We thought it was the remnants of the VDV, the Russian airborne forces that were over the river in Hezon City and the and the Environs to, to slow down Ukraine's rate of advance, either to try and hold on to the area or to buy time for the withdrawal. But we were, we were led to believe that it was the better trained, more regular, if I can use that expression, um, Russian forces, not mobilised soldiers. I wonder if you had a comment on that. And, and, and separately, so getting back over the river... Was it good soldiers that knew what they were doing? Was it a good plan? And we've been trying to work out if new General Sorovkin has actually been able to grip the Russian high command and they're actually, they actually yeah, are putting into practice what they should have been doing all along. Or, or a mixture of both. Because, I mean, if it, 
if it's good soldiers, that's one thing, but they, they, they are increasingly fewer in number. Um, if it's a good plan and a good, a good grip on the Russian senior leadership, that might be more concerning for Ukraine. So I just wonder if you had a feeling from the ground of, um, of, of who it was that was the, the, the last Russians to leave and, uh, and, and quite whether it was the, it was the soldiers or the, or the plan that, was the, that was, did the heavy lifting. Sorry, Dom, you've got a long question there. I'm afraid my answer is very short. I have not got a clue, I'm afraid. Um, that was not something that I really had much time to uh, address with the people while we were in Kherson. We were on a relatively tight schedule focusing on torture chambers and human rights stuff and so on. What All, all I know is that there was originally talk that there was about 4,000 Russians still behind the lines as the retreat was due to have been completed. And there was, there was speculation as to whether these were elite troops uh, left you know, deliberately behind to sow chaos and sabotage, or whether they'd simply not got um, over the bridge in time in the chaos of the withdrawal. Um, I, I, what I can say is that in, in having been there in the following days after the withdrawal was com- allegedly completed, we did not hear sight or sound of those um, th- those Russian forces. There doesn't seem to have been any sense that they are in, in any kind of way a power or a threat. Um, the only other thing I can add is that while we were on the press bus or on, on, the, on the bus that took us into Kherson, on the way out, we, po- we stopped perhaps inadvisedly for um, a photograph at the gates, uh, the Kherson gates, where Zelens- President Zelensky had also stopped during his visit that same morning. And at that point, a couple of uh, Russian uh, shells, I don't know what they were, but I certainly heard the whistle, um, landed quite close to the bus and sowed general panic, which was added to by the fact that the um, uh, the, the bus that were, the other bus that we were with then broke down about five minutes later. Um, so there's clearly some hostile um, forces still aiming stuff at Kherson, and in particular us, I think, that day. But uh, who they are, I'm afraid I can't really uh, tell you. No, no problem. I've, I must apologise. That's that's the sort of soft, comfy London question because I keep getting asked questions like that from the from the news desk here about what's Putin thinking? When's he going to press the buttons? I don't know. I have no idea. So I do apologise. That was really it was a bit of a, a bit of a hospital pass of a question. But it, it will be interesting to see now, given the pressure up in the in the Donbass and and Russia's almost. Well, I wouldn't say desire, necessity for a battlefield victory. They will use um, what troops they've got out of Herzon somehow, somewhere. I think to try and get something, maybe around Bakhmut in the in the centre. So, if it is, if it was VDV, the airborne forces that were that were in there, we might might see them cropping up in the centre in the next couple of weeks. But no, again, I, I apologise. It's one one I will watch, and uh, and I'll try and be better with my questioning in the future. Cheers, Colin. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Colin. Uh, Francis, can I come to you? I know you've got a couple of notes on some more interesting stories, one regarding Poland's army and another out of Russia itself. Yes, well, thanks, David. I think I just wanted to draw attention to this story, which is a long read in Politico, because I think they, they make some very interesting points in it, and discussion points at least, and, and also um, have some quite interesting sources on offer. So it's a piece that's talking about the role of Poland in the war. Now, of course, last week, a stray missile landed and killed two people in one of the Polish border towns. And, and the piece talks about how there's actually been some concern amongst uh, Western allies about what the Polish reaction would be. Indeed, on that evening, there were fears that there might be a rather rash response from, from Poland. And so there was sort of a lot of diplomatic scrambling around to ensure that that wasn't the case. And then it goes on and talks about just how... Uh, important the role of Poland has become in the defence space since the war began and indeed even before the war. Um, And it's just lots of details and and lots of of fleshing out from sources in in talking about it as a sort of military superpower in in, in Eastern Europe now. And it quotes a senior US army official in Europe uh, who says, Poland has become our most important partner in continental Europe. He goes on and cites the crucial role that Poland's played in supporting Ukraine and also shoring up NATO's defences in the Baltics. Now, it comes off the back as well. The source talks about how traditionally Germany would have 
been America's key ally in the region, but and whilst it remains a key logistical hub, actually Berlin's sort of back and forth on the issue of Ukraine has hampered its effectiveness as a partner. That's according to the official. Whereas Poland has already ordered more tanks and howitzers. Um, it's on course to have a much larger army than Germany's. So it has a target of around 300,000 troops by 2035 compared to Germany's current 170,000. Poland's military is already about 150,000 strong with 30,000 belonging to a new territorial defence force set up in around 2017. So just a very interesting long read, which I'd point listeners to looking at the strategic and and defensive role in Poland off the back of the attack there last week. And perhaps a few interesting insights there that that, that people won't necessarily have been aware of on just the the scale of Poland's involvement in the the war since it began. Of course, regular listeners will be aware of just how significant Poland's role was, not only in the military space, but also in taking in refugees. Millions upon millions of refugees were taken in by Poland um, when, when the war began. And that was absolutely integral for ensuring that there weren't enormous blockages as people tried to flee the country. So all of this stuff really, really mattered. And so very interesting insights on Poland there. Um, just the other story is also another piece in, a, in another piece of uh, foreign press, which is uh, Newsweek, which is about uh, some leaked emails from a whistleblower at the FSB, of course, the Russian intelligence service. It's a sort of successor, it's often described as of the KGB. And this whistleblower has sort of revealed the state of things within Russia, but also within um, within the FSB itself. Now, of course, all whistleblowers should be seen with a, a degree of caution and, and particularly any sources coming out from, from within uh, Russia's intelligence services. But nonetheless, just I thought it offered a little bit of colour and insight as to what um, may be going on in Russia at the moment. Now, this agent is dubbed Wind of Change. That's his sort of code name and has been dis- offering regular dispatches to to um, a Russian distant exile. And he reveals the sort of anger and discontent within the FSB, as I say. And he talks about um, how there's inner turmoil and predicting an inevitable civil war and that Russia will soon descend, and I quote, into an abyss of terror as the public grow increasingly tired of the war. He then goes into detail talking about how uh, Putin's allies, founder of the Wagner Group, of course, who we've talked about at length, and uh, the Chechen leader, and how um, they've continued to criticise Putin's war, how it's being handled, and that this is really behind closed doors even more um, vehement. And ultimately says that we, the FSB, screwed up the country, not only on February 24th when the whole affair began, but much earlier when February 24th became possible in principle. Chaos, civil war, collapse. Yes, it's all ahead of us. It is inevitable. Too many in Russia have crossed the point of no return. They plan to see little czars in the areas they managed to capture. At least that's the way they are thinking. Now, as I say, this should be treated with a degree of caution. It has been independently verified by people who are familiar with the workings of the FSB. But um, nonetheless, if this is even... uh true in, 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 in abstract, I think it's significant because this has been one of the essential questions of the war is what is going on in the elite, the Russian elite mentality at the moment. And if this is indicative of broader trends, that there is a real struggle going on for power within the FSB and within Russia itself, and that they predict there to be a real implosion in the weeks and months ahead, then that, of course, is going to be very, very significant for what happens um, not only in the war in Ukraine, but within Russia itself uh, about thinking about its long term future. We've said all along that the evidence would be suggestive that things will become more difficult for Russia uh, over the months ahead, not less, um, which perhaps contradicts with some of the thinking uh, in Western governments at the moment. And there are certain reasons for that. The sanctions, of course, will be continue to bite more effectively. The energy war that Putin was hoping to wage over winter is expected not to be quite as severe as expected. So all of these factors are coming into play. And of course, if there is this implosion, then uh, it will be one that could not only derail uh, his uh, Putin's plans in Ukraine, but could have huge, huge geopolitical significance around the world. Thanks, Francis. Dom, I know you want to come in quickly on the Polish military. Yeah, just very quickly, if I may, it's a fascinating article in Politico talking about Poland's Poland's position and how it's uh, you know, getting weapons now from from South Korea. And it just reminds me, we've mentioned before, but it reminds me again of Donald Rumsfeld's 
uh, comments, you know, love him or love him or loathe him, but that, that's irrelevant here. Remember, he was talking about uh, after criticism from French and German politicians after the two thousand the two thousand three um, invasion of Iraq. He he, Donald Rumsfeld was was um, pushed back on the criticism, saying, "Oh no, that's 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 the old Europe. That's that's old Europe." And he was appealing to new Europe and talking about security dynamics in that regard. Caught everyone a bit by surprise. No one really knew what the hell he was talking about. But actually, it is now interesting to see that perhaps what he was describing this this the new Europe, new new defence identity in Europe coming to the fore with Poland much more much more muscular. Look at the Baltic states. Look at the Scandinavian states, especially now Finland and Sweden um, have applied to join NATO. And okay, a few little hiccups with Hungary, but I'm sure they'll be smoothed over. They're gonna they're gonna join, I, I think, which is going to turn the Baltic Sea into a NATO lake. So very interesting things that are happening here. Um, about where the centre of gravity for for European power, military power, hard military power is. Um, and I think Poland are at the forefront of that. Britain is trying to, well, Britain has a very close relationship with, with Poland. We're in all sorts of different um, defence relationships, including a bilateral relationship. In fact, actually, trilateral with, um, ooh, name forgives me, excuse me, but a, tri- a trilateral relationship um, as well as JEF, the Joint Expeditionary Force, and NATO, of course. Um, so just very interesting to see where where these big ideas are moving. Contrast that with what Rumsfeld might have called the old Europe, you know, French and France and Germany. Um, you know, we've criticised Germany many times on here, and also applauded them where where we think they've got got it right. But but generally, the, 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 that sort of idea of, of the, the further west you go, the least um, those countries have lent into this the issue about Russia's. Uh, you know, illegal invasion here, um, and we know that, that President Macron is very keen to build up, build up this idea, if not of an EU army, but certainly of a much greater, much more muscular pan-European defence um, identity. Possibly because of the French defence contractors, we get a load of the, load of that cash. So really interesting to see that actually Poland have, have gone completely left field, gone out to Korea for some very, very um, decent equipment, sort of the, the less high spec, but much more capable, much more in greater quantities you know quantity has a quality all of its own somebody somebody once said um, so yeah just a new, i was reading that political article and i thought that that's that's really interesting there was an echo echo was rumsfield about it i'll just uh, i'll leave it there thanks very much for that uh dom i think we're unfortunately getting to the end of our time together today so can i just ask each of you if you don't have any extra updates for us for your final thoughts Certainly. Well, regular listeners will be aware of uh, my focus on this issue around illegal deportations of Ukrainian civilians to uh, to Russia and Russian controlled territory. And as I say, we're hoping to do some more in-depth episodes on this over the winter period. But I just wanted to draw attention to a piece uh, of research that's been conducted by Amnesty International. Now, of course, Amnesty has come under criticism for its approach to the Ukrainian war. And um, we've talked about that at length in the past. But this is a very interesting um, report that they've published into uh, this this process of Ukrainian civilians being uh, being filtrated and then transferred and eventually deported from occupied areas of Ukraine. Now, this report doesn't mince its words. It says that what's been going on amounts to war crimes and are likely crimes against humanity. The report is called Like a Prison Convoy, Russia's Unlawful Transfer of Civilians in Ukraine and Abuses During Filtration. It details how Russian control forces have uh, transferred these civilians from the occupied territories, including children who have been separated from their families during the protest, which of course is in direct violation with uh, international humanitarian law. Talks about the abusive screening processes, which as I say are known as filtration, uh, which is sometimes results uh, in arbitrary detention, torture, and other ill treatment, this is uh, their central sources are interviewing eighty eight people from Ukraine, most of them civilians from Mariupol, but also from uh, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia as well. And they go on and describe in really harrowing and vivid detail the kind of coercive conditions that that they were forced to experience as a consequence of this. It talks about how some of them, once they were in Russia, were pressured into applying for Russian citizenship and said that their movements were restricted. Um, There have been instances where children have been uh, sort of forced to go through a process of applying for citizenship, particularly those who are either orphans or, or without 
about parental care. Some people with disabilities have also been forced to go through a similar process. And as you can imagine, the report details all this and then calls on governments to further condemn Russia and to speak out against about these instances. And I do think it's quite remarkable, actually, that this isn't being more addressed and, and more of an issue that's being drawn attention to at the moment. Um, and uh, I think it just comes off the back of what Colin was talking about earlier and that Dom alluded to, that the Spanish police are currently deploying Ukrainians um, uh, sorry, deploying people in Ukraine over the coming weeks to help investigate the, these alleged war crimes. And I think that, as I say, that the international community is sensitive to it, but perhaps should be talking about it a little bit more loudly because you read this report and um, it's, it's, it's deeply concerning stuff. Thank you, Francis. Uh, Colin, can I come to you? Yes, just finally, um, uh, listeners will be aware that um, our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, um, was in Kiev uh, just recently. And um, you may be wondering what it's like for world leaders as they take that train from the Polish border all the way to Kiev. It's 10 hours on a, um, you know, on a very much a bog standard um, Ukrainian commuter train. Not much fun if you're a world leader used to flying around in uh, private jets and traveling everywhere in a limousine. But um, but very necessary if you're traveling through Ukraine. There is no air, airspace is closed. And uh, if you're a world leader, it's not really considered safe to be traveling around in a big armored convoy with um, sirens blaring and everything. But a very obvious um, target for the Russians. So what they do is they travel into Kiev by the train, um, 10 hours, usually overnight on the cover of darkness. Not much fun at the best of times, but um, there is a uh, there is a consolation, which is that um, one of Ukraine's top chefs, um, a chap called Ye- um, Yevgeny, uh, or Eugene rather, um, uh, Yevgeny is in a sort of alternative way of pronouncing that name in, in Ukrainian, uh, Yevgeny uh, Klotopenko, um, who is kind of um, Ukraine's answer to Jamie Oliver, he realised early on that um, uh, that foreign leaders were, were coming in on this train and he decided to make their, their journey a bit more comfortable by providing them with very, very top class Ukrainian cuisine. This is partly just so they don't want having to make do with sandwiches or the Ukraine's answer to a British real pork pie or something, but also just as a, uh, a way of exercising some soft power and charming them, uh, hopefully into providing more support, more military support, more finance for Kiev than they might otherwise get. Um, and so he's been preparing all sorts of uh, fancy Ukrainian meals, river trout, um, uh, various Ukrainian cheeses from uh, the Carpathian Mountains, pancakes, dumplings and everything else. His first um, guest, apparently, was Boris Johnson. Um, he wasn't even told in advance that it was going to be Boris Johnson. He was just going to be told it was a, a very special guest and a very special friend of Ukraine. And so he's been uh, he's been giving them uh, this food ever since. So. The journey is not quite that bad, it would seem. And it, it, judging by the amount of support Ukraine has been getting in terms of uh, uh, military support, it, it certainly seems to have worked. Uh, as you, you could say, you know, the, the way to a world's leader uh, may be through his heart, but it is also through his stomach. Um, anyway, we, we've interviewed uh, this, for, this aforementioned chef for the paper a few days ago. So if you want to hear more about what he said, uh, just uh, look the paper up online. He is also traveling around the UK as we speak, doing some fundraising dinners. So you might, if you uh, if you're in the right part of the world, part of the country, even be able to try some of his food. Well, thanks for that, Colin. Just two things on that. One that does sound absolutely delicious, and two, I, I don't know. I think Dom, Dom and I, we had, we had quite a, I'd say, very restful and um, and enjoyable evening and, and morning on on the, on the sleeper train out of out of Kiev towards the Polish border. Um, Dom Nichols. Oh no, Dom, you've got the final thoughts on that. So I don't know if you want to come back on that at, at all. Yes, I will. I will come back on that comment about our trip out of Kiev on the overnight train, David. But I'll take it offline with you later. Um, all I'll all I'll leave. The final thought here is um, I can't I don't, can't disclose when, where, who, or uh, well I think we know the why. But keep your eyes out this week. There's uh, I fully anticipate more news on the international military aid effort um, to come. Like I say, I won't go into details, um, but but I'm expecting some some other news from uh, from a number of countries pledging money, training, and uh, and equipment to come out in the very near future, which I will obviously keep you posted on. Thanks. 
Last week, I spoke to a contact who spends their time ferrying supplies to Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines. Their story is fascinating and tells of the challenges faced by Ukraine's armed forces and the bravery of those who give their time and money to send them what they need. We have disguised their voice to protect their identity. Here's our conversation. Why does this war matter to you? I think on a sort of personal level, obviously on the, on the morning of the invasion, I messaged several friends in Kyiv. One particular old friend, I messaged her and she said, my mother is already hiding in my bathtub with her service revolver from her days in the police, waiting to shoot the first Russian who comes through the door. Her mother's house had already been hit by a rocket and she was on the point of going out to get her grandmother to bring her to her house as well. She, she was sending me photographs of other mutual friends, one of whom was is a sort of um, slightly bespectacled IT expert who was, the photograph was him standing in his socks with his Jack Russell Terrier holding his newly acquired Kalashnikov. I realised that if even people like this were deciding to hold up and fight to the end, this was really serious. And uh, my friend repeatedly left the house to run various errands, so to get medicines for people in that block of flats or take cigarettes to um, the territorial defence units that were defending the outskirts of the city and that sort of thing. She was collecting petrol so uh, her grandmother could make Molotov cocktails in the kitchen, <laughs> presumably with expertise she had from the Soviet days. And um, despite, you know, it doesn't matter how many times I tried to talk her out of this, I, I, I'll never forget how she, you know, she said to me, you know, so like, I, I cannot just sit and watch while my people are slain. And I realized that she's someone who grew up and went to Russian-speaking schools. Russian is her first language. She is an ethnic Russian. And here she is, all her family, three generations, refusing to leave and fight to the death. It was a realization of how, uh, how hard this was going to be. Um, and I said to her, is there anything I can do? And she said, it's very kind, but there's literally nothing you can do. I found that sort of um, intensely frustrating. And so on the, on the second day of the war, on the morning of the 26th, I sort of set up a small WhatsApp group with about eight friends, all of whom had some connection to Ukraine. And I said, look, can we raise a little bit of money just to help her with her errands, essentially? And then over the course of the day, there was a series of quite extraordinary events. So I remember the Russian military got halfway down one of the metro lines to Berestesko station, so into the suburbs of the western part of the city, and there was pitched battles in the metro station and along the main road. There were two Kavirovsky death squads just wiped out while they tried to assassinate President Zelensky. And, uh, and in the morning, there was that very famous clip where Zelensky said, President Putin. The president is here, you know, the foreign minister is here, the defense minister is here, we are not leaving. So I sort of went to bed that night with, a, I guess, sort of two realizations. I suppose one was that um, that the Ukrainians were not going to bend. They were not going to leave. They were not going to run. They were going to fight very, very hard. And that the Russians didn't have the manpower to achieve what they wanted. So the first, that was probably my first realization. And I think what followed from that was the realization that there was really a very simple calculus at this stage, which was this was only going to end one way with the Russians losing and leaving. And the only real question now was uh, how much destruction and how many lives had to be lost before they accepted this fact. And so I suppose at that point, I really started to think about this isn't just about medication and cigarettes. This is going to have to be something more serious. And I woke up the next morning to be astounded fact that overnight my eight friends had talked to their friends who talked to their friends who talked to their friends and I already had 15,000 pounds sat in my bank account <laughs> and then you know part of that for example was you know donated by a, a businessman in his 80s who I had never met before who was a friend of a friend of a friend who called me up gleefully that morning to say that the bank had had stopped his transaction and he'd called them up and said, why? And they said, well, we're worried you're sending it to a strange account. And he said, yes, it's, it's Molotov cocktails in Kiev. And um, the bank manager said, uh, excellent, sir, we'll make it an extra speedy payment. <laughs> so there's that sense of like the huge sort of outpouring of sympathy, essentially, and goodwill in the UK. Oh, but I realized with that sort of quantity of money, I had to, I had to focus on getting more kit in rather than just bidding up the price of what was already in a slightly kind of empty city. There's something that resonates about this 
with our own kind of national story about standing more or less alone against militarized dictatorship and so on. Um, the Dunker element has been something that I've seen in Ukraine since 2014. I mean, civil society has been one of the main suppliers of the military in Ukraine since the start of what they see as the war. But also the obvious kind of global implications of this, that you can't allow might is right sort of behavior. Um, potential for that spreading is very serious. So you mentioned uh, your experience in Kyiv. How did you end up there? I had a friend who was supposed to be taking the equipment, so we bought a load of kits, uh, you know, drones, sleeping bags, the sort of stuff that they were very short of in Kiev at that time. I had a friend who was supposed to take it, and uh, unfortunately, from my point of view, he was um, he managed to find a unit to join three days before he was supposed to pick up the equipment. So I ended up having to take it out myself, and um, a Ukrainian friend of mine in London shared the driving down to the Polish border, and I remember we arrived at the Polish border, and there was a large Polish soldier who came over to the car and this huge queue of cars trying to get across the border and he said uh, what are you doing with all this stuff and my ukrainian friend leant out the window and he said to kill russians the polish soldiers said um ah oh, excellent you'll need the green corridor nothing to declare down there and uh, so off we went and uh, i got to lviv took a train from lviv and there were still a couple of trains a day operating in through the south of kiev because that was the only area where the russian encirclement hadn't reached um and i remember you know, the hour or two before we arrived into Kiev, they turned all the power off on the train, so all the lights were turned off because the day before they'd been shelled by the Russians. Um, so they were trying to keep lights discipline. And when I arrived, there was a secret service escort that took me to my flat because it was curfew. The next day, just a huge stream of different soldiers from different units arrived to collect equipment. And they were all coming only half an hour from the front. I mean, they would literally, they would call me up and they'd say, we'll be there in 25 minutes. And they'd, they'd be coming from Gastromel or whatever to pick up their one drone for their unit. It was, there was a real shortage at that time. It was a very strange time to be in Kiev, which is normally a sort of gastronomic delight. Um, but on this occasion, there was only two restaurants open in a city of four million people. My local supermarket was very strange. It had about three items available in quite large quantities, but only three. There was sort of a sort of rye vita bread and, uh, and there was some white farm cheddar cheese from England, which I still to this day can't explain. And um, and somehow, by some miraculous process, each morning there would be um, fresh oysters in a tank by the door. <laughs> so I had this sort of slightly rich diet for some days. And um, obviously, some of the soldiers I've been working with, they would be sending me things from the front. And one of the special forces units I had supplied went, were the first to go into Bulcher at the end of March. So. There was a lot of um, footage I got before it became sort of world news. Maybe realised something really, really horrific had happened. But I've been in Ukraine and mostly Kiev for the last eight months, and it's been a great joy to watch the city slowly return to life. You, you've talked a few times about the supplies you've been giving to the soldiers. What kind of supplies, in, in general terms, do you give them? We particularly focus on things that are advantageous to get from the UK. So all of our cargo, for example, is is driven down from the UK to the front directly in always in Mitsubishi L200s, which are incredibly popular in this war. They are the pickup of choice for uh, Ukrainian soldiers. And we always buy them sort of secondhand for a few thousand pounds, mostly from farmers in sort of rural counties of England, you know, the north and, um, you know, Devon and Cornwall and so on. And they're incredibly popular in Ukraine because, because not only they're very cheap, but they're also right-hand drive, which inexplicably is extremely popular. They, they, the reason they're so keen on this is because the Russians, whenever they ambush, they always first shoot at the driver. And obviously that means that they shoot an empty passenger seat. The driver can get out of the ambush as quickly as possible. And so far, touch wood, we've had this a couple of times where the passenger seat part of the windscreen has been completely destroyed. Um, but no one's actually been hurt. So we have one car we delivered in April, which has been shot up now twice. It's been repaired and it's um, it's been operating since August with a multiple range, multiple rocket launch system on the back of the loading bay in uh, Kherson province. I think we, we also take a lot of army surplus kits. So we get very good value for Xiaomi kits. So Arctic Warfare sleeping bags we're getting for about £20. Uh, we basically, I think we get probably better value equipment than certainly any other organization I've seen operating in Ukraine. And we have a very sort of agile system in the sense that five days before the delivery is expected in your trench, we can still change what goes into the vehicle. So soldiers can order things and it's, it's you know, more or less like a slightly slow Amazon service. 
we often literally ask them to send Amazon links so that we can get the stuff for them. Um, and, you know, to give you a sense of the agility you get, to we, we, we delivered a, an L200 at lunchtime into Creative August in September, which by the evening was being photographed in the encirclement of Le Mans. So it's the first Russian city to fall, I think, since 1942, depending on your categorization. Uh, so we tend to normally take uh, things that we see as sort of force multiplier kit. So there was a very strange period in April, May, where we had a lot of demand for sort of Halford's car battery adapters because Special Forces units needed them to recharge their end laws because the sighting systems ran out of charge before they get to fire them. And we were sending, we sent 1,500 lithium batteries for like long range drones, the Ukrainians developing for specific operations. Um, we take a lot of specialist drone parts that are only made in the UK. Um, there's a big community here for that. But also we've made a lot of connections through the funds that have helped a lot. So one of our donors put us in touch with the oldest supplier of Autel drones in Europe, and he's been giving us thermal drones at cost, which he's then been painting for us with camouflage and so on. We've managed to get in touch, we've managed to set up prosthetics companies, mine clearance organizations, all sorts of things. And we got the sort of mechanic in the UK who so far has managed to check every vehicle that's gone out. And we have Touchwood had zero breakdowns uh, on route. You've mentioned a few times that you've been to the front. You've seen some of this war really firsthand. What struck you from your experiences there? I think we're all quite well versed in the sort of damage and the bravery that's being shown out there. I think all your listeners, you've done an excellent job of getting getting that across, I think. I think one of the things that I haven't seen much in, in journalism is writing about the sort of remarkable sort of humour and optimism that particularly soldiers still have, despite these very sort of brutalising conditions. It's it's quite dark humour, but it's strangely optimistic, and I I, 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 I'm, I constantly feel slightly ashamed of myself for feeling down about this war when I spend time with soldiers. I think we've all seen Ukrainian resilience. So from day one, I assumed that the Ukrainian army would be you know, kneecapped, basically, by you know Russian, the Russian Air Force and um, electronic warfare systems. And, and actually, I've been proved completely wrong. And I would say it goes down from strategic level right to the individual soldiers. The, the ability for Ukrainians to put, you know, to have a, I saw crossroads in Kiev that had been hit by a Russian missile was patched up by the next morning. I saw it for myself. It's their ability to maintain a semblance of normality is quite extraordinary. Funny enough, I went to, um, I got tickets to the Kiev Opera, which they somehow managed to reopen um, in the middle of the Iranian drone strikes. And um, I was very gratified to see that it was pretty much entirely booked out for La Traviata. I, I went along and sort of squeezed into the back. And um, uh, final acts, the third act was sort of prematurely ended by uh, an Iranian drone. And um, there was sort of the two lovers were still holding each other in their arms and singing when the curtain had to come down. And there was a sort of standing ovation before they all very calmly evacuated. <laughs> their ability to sort of maintain this sort of element of civilization in the face of all this barbarism is very impressive. But I'd say the other thing that's perhaps surprising is the sort of enduring popularity of the UK specifically. And I don't think that's I don't think that's because of all the kit that we've sent. I don't think we've been a particularly big supplier of kit, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, or necessarily our ongoing support. But I think it's it's the fact that we were the first major Western country to stand with them when they initially felt quite sort of abandoned to their fate in January. Um, and it could be a long time before they forget that. I think that's sort of power of, you know, we know that from World War II, that power of knowing at least someone is on your side and is sort of rooting for you. I still occasionally at checkpoints when they see my passport get sort of rise salutes from soldiers and God save the Queen, which might be a little out of date, but it's still quite touching. Um, it's one of those few occasions where you feel that Britain's sort of punched above its weight in the way that governments so often say they would like to. You've touched on it a few times, but maybe you'd like to sum up your thoughts. What do you think the future looks like now for this war and for Ukraine? I think it's extraordinarily unpredictable. Um, I think the sort of centralised nature of the Russian government means that, you know, by the time we finish this recording, something may have happened in Moscow and Vladimir Putin is gone in some capacity. And but the armistice will be drawn up in a week's time. You just don't know. It's, it could be over very soon. It could go on for a very long time. I think that sort of underlines some of the value of uh, funds like mine in the sense that there's that 
agility and ability to kind of roll with the punches of this war because it's so hard to predict you know one week we told we need this and the next week suddenly it's completely changed i think it's important thinking about the future as well just to remind ourselves put it all in its proper perspective in the sense that i was talking to my 65 year old father the other day and i said to him do you remember anything bigger than this happening in your lifetime and he sort of thought for a bit and he thought no i can't i can't think of anything more kind of portentous more that more hangs on than this and i think we're looking you know winter really is coming now and i've i've seen winters in ukraine before and it is a serious business it is extremely cold and we've got a delivery going out in a week's time which is pretty much entirely medical and cold weather but at the moment we're sort of looking forward fundraising for a big convoy in january because i think by the new year, we'll have a much better idea of what the Ukrainians have realized they needed that they might not think about now. And I think we can fill in the gaps that the kind of big organizations might have missed, which happens a lot. So, I mean, I, I'd strongly suggest that, you know, anyone who wants to help now is a very good time to do so, because if the Ukrainians can be that much better supplied, especially the warm weather kit during this winter compared to the Russians, this is one of the best chances they have of you know, dominating the Russian army without actually needing to even shoot all that much, just surviving, holding ground in a way the Russians are not able to because of their corrupt supply routines. So I mean, I suggest, it, I mean, if you want to donate, I think some of the best, there's some amazing Ukrainian funds. I think the, you know, Sergei uh, Bratula Foundation or the issue even like come back alive they're very good but i'd also urge people you know that want to help with our work you know whether it's with money or equipment or contacts or even those who want to give their time you know even some people who might want to drive vehicles to the front i'd urge you to get in touch um by email and the email address is ukraine.equipment at gmail.com well thank you so much for your time that was absolutely fascinating Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app, and check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Jaden Irving. <laughs>